Uh, talking about music uh, was traditionally something that they did in ancient Greece. They loved to talk about music. They loved it. Yeah, it originated in ancient Greece, these noble games. Uh, Who's your favourite um, ancient Greek uh, rapper? Countdown Topper. Uh, yeah. <laughs> probably <laughs> Joe Dolce. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Who's the guy? Aristophanes? He was all right. No. He was pretty good. Euripides? He was pretty good, good. right? Yeah. Yeah. No. You know what? Sophocles. Give me some of that uh, eye-stabbing, mum-shagging goodness. (laughs) (laughs) It's got it all. I'm all over that. Um, Look, I'm I'm a simple man. I hear... Music that's the result of Pythagoras' mathematical devotion laying the foundations for our knowledge of study of harmonics. I'm happy. The tool fan is logged on. Jesus Christ. problem is way out of hand. The Baltimore County School Board have decided to expel Dexter from the entire public school system. It's the opinion of the entire staff that Dexter is criminally insane. We are Hottest 100s and Thousands and we have taken over your radio station. This is the podcast where we have a tune when I count three and talk about the songs that have been deemed hot enough and psychosomatic enough to be in the Triple J Hottest 100. What does that mean? It means that I'm a nut. I'm crazy in the coconut. I'm David James Young, and I'm one of the four voices you're going to be hearing for the next hour or so. Joining me once again is Adam Buncher. Hello. Mr. Andrew McDonald. Good evening. And the man who expelled Dexter from the entire public school system, Nathan Harrison. Oh, no. Well, look. I guess it was it was the right call in the end. No, that boy just needed therapy. Well, I don't I don't know. There was there was a lot more to it than than you knew about. Oh, so. oh. yeah. Oh, huh. okay. Yeah. So this this is this is your serial podcast that's coming out soon. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Exploring Dexter's truancy problem. No, guys, we have to get on message right because we have come to a shocking realization. Yes. That we have done the entire countdown nearly well nearly nearly you're right thank god we realized it here (laughs) we've done the entire countdown for the year 2000 we've barely mentioned the olympics once i don't think we mentioned them at all have we briefly with regurgitators unofficial oh that's true that's true that that was ah yes indeed that should have tipped us off (laughs) this is just like that time in the olympics where they went through the whole ceremony without actually doing any sports until like the last day and they were like, oh, shit. Well, that's actually brilliant, Nathan, because now it makes it seem like it was it was deliberate. It was our choice all along, which leads us nicely into the fact that we are now, I'd like to suggest, and, and see whether it works, <laughs> going to ham-fistedly turn this into an Olympic Sydney 2000 top 10. I think that's good. You think so? We can retcon this. We can chase away all the homeless people. We can... <laughs> Build a big stadium out west. Fantastic. We can um, not prepare the public transport system well enough. We can take a day off school and go watch it with the rest of the class once. Yeah. Oh, yes. I didn't get to yeah. do that. Really? What did you see? It was fucking actually tight as hell. It wasn't the Olympics. It was the Paralympics. Yeah, we went to the Paralympics too. What did, what did you see? I saw the basketball. It ruled. It was so uh, exciting. Yeah, roller basketball is awesome. We saw the netball. Oh, tight. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Dude, yeah. it's a thrilling, dangerous fucking game. It rules, man. It's so exciting to watch. So, um, uh, t- uh, torch ceremony. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. so I think this is where we're, we all, we have to pass the torch to each other 
Um, and then we light it. Yeah. And there's the the spirit of the games in that. Yeah. Sid, yeah. Millie, and Ollie are all here. Oh, I remember those guys. There's Sid, Ollie, Millie, and Lizzie. Lizzie was the Paralympic mascot, and there's four oh, of us. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God, Fuck yes. Yeah. Can I be the affable-looking platypus? You absolutely can. Sid? <laughs> Citation needed? Yes, it's Sid the platypus, Ollie the kookaburra, Millie the echidna, and Lizzie the lizard. With that, They kind of... Look, we've all been late on the assignment and just bailed <laughs> something in, but <laughs> it's a good demonstration of how much time and effort they went to the Paralympics. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so wait, you're going to be the platypus. Wait, but before we do this, <laughs> let me tell you uh, their traits. What? Oh, yes. Is there like a quiz we can do? What 2000s Olympic mascot are you? That's so millennial of us. <laughs> Ollie the Kookaburra, whose name's taken rather cleverly from the term Olympics. Oh, my God. He represents the Olympic spirit of generosity. Sid, mm. taken rather obtusely from the word Sydney, which I guess is a place, um, was the platypus, <laughs> and represents the environment as well as the activity and energy of Australia and their population. Millie from Millennium, which was the name for the year taken after the generation Millennials, um, knows everything about technology and numerical data, which is the classic part of the Olympics. The stats. Stats. And Lizzie the Frillneck Lizard represents strength, determination, and a positive attitude which is a little bit patronising to people who are Olympians. <laughs> it's very patronising. But whatever. So who do we think we are? I think I'm uh, rather patronising, so I'll be Lizzie. <laughs> okay. That's I've, I've already I've already did Sid, dude. Okay. okay, right. Nathan, I think we know you're going to be the technology and numerical data dweeb. Sounds good. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. Deej, that leaves you with Ollie the Kookaburra, and you represent the Olympic spirit of generosity. Good match. Yeah, Great. good match. <laughs> yes, perfect. I'll light the ceremonial torch and we'll pass oh, it around. Please do. <laughs> 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 ah, ah, hot. <laughs> oh, Oli- Olympic. <laughs> no, I fucking burnt my lip. I'm a- <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were acting. <laughs> I would have assumed our Olympic torch was a vape. I changed vape so it doesn't have a noise anymore. So sorry, <laughs> listeners. I know you're all loving those parts of the fucking at-home podcast. The ones that squeaked through. Because yeah. tr- trust me, like I took out a lot more. I know. Now that we've done the part of the uh, podcast that everybody was waiting to hear, <laughs> the opening 10-minute preamble about Olympics stuff. <laughs> this is the Olympics episode. <laughs> We're making it happen. Deej, what's the first event? Uh, the first event is car selling. <laughs> <laughs> At number 10, this is the Dandy Warhols with Bohemian Lackey. You got a great car. Yeah, what's wrong with it today? I used to have one too. Maybe I'll come and have a look. I really love your hair, I do, yeah. I'm glad you like mine too. See what looking pretty cool gets you. Yeah, I wait tables too. No, I haven't heard your band. 
Warhols hitting number 10 in the hottest 100 of the year 2000. That is their signature song, Bohemian Like You. It comes from the album 13 Tales of Urban Bohemia. Here for you is an additional tale of Urban Bohemia brought to you by McDonald's, our sponsor for this episode and the entire 2000s Olympics. And, of course, their lead spokesperson, Andrew <laughs> McDonald. I really like that um, due to um, copyright law involving things named after your surnames, I'm pretty sure I could open a place called McDonald's. I'm pretty sure you couldn't do that. I'm pretty sure I will now. Thanks, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> Let me know how that turns out for you. I am unemployed and poor, so it's a no, no better time to defend myself in court. Uh, yes, <laughs> Bohemian Like You. As you said, Deej, absolutely the dandy's signature song. I've heard the uh, 13 Towers record many times, of course, and I fuck with it, and I fucking fuck with this song, man. The way this song exists in the public consciousness and also the way it's written, it's absolutely just like a total like late part of Gen X or early part of millennial, like the 2000 games. <laughs> anthem of like dorky desire much like the spirit of the games themselves were a desire for companionship um, I think this is just a fucking sweet easy as hell piece of alternative rock that has like a really way more than you'd expect or that perhaps it needs to to its benefit stuff going on behind the main riff like there's a lot of like synthy patches going on here the bass does some interesting things it references um other like older songs kind of thing like that namely um the specials, um, little bitch in the guitar riff, uh, which is like kind of obvious when you like. Oh yeah, true. Yeah, I can't believe you brought up Scar before me. <laughs> that first specials record is all time. Andrew won gold in the Scar Sprint. Yeah, or as they unfortunately they renamed it the Hurdles, but. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nevertheless, I'll get to the origin of the song's composition, but I feel like the lyrics just kind of work as this kind of dumb, dorky piece of, like, rambling story between two listless people with not much going on in their life who just, like, wait tables and one of them has a band and they just kind of hook up and it's kind of weird house-sharing, stuff like that. In its own way, it's very sincere and sweet to a certain generation of people around this time who are... This being number 10 here is so stands to reason for the youth audience of Triple J in 2000 in the wake of the games, looking for companionship <laughs> and like dorky kind of connection, which I think that's very fucking sweet. And also big up to Triple J and the Triple J audience for kind of getting uh, uh, on this before the rest of the world did. Because mm. this, this was released in 2000, but it really was not a big seller. It only reached not number 42 on the UK charts. It wasn't until 2001 when Vodafone used it in an advertising campaign that it really blew up. It was re-released as a single and got to number five, but that was in 2001. But the Triple J audience and the Triple J programmers knew that they had a fucking hit on their hands. Very good. Yeah, man. Yeah, and I'm fucking glad they did because I think this is a fucking banger. I love what you said, like, about the lyrics, and I think that's so true, right? It's like, it's almost like a self-parody or it's borderline. Totally is, man. Totally is. You know what I mean? What it really is is just like, effortlessly cool people kind of like owning up to the fact that being cool is kind of dorky therefore mm. making themselves even cooler somehow because it's talking about you know this this lifestyle and culture and, and calling it bohemian or whatever and i think courtney taylor taylor said that it was inspired by the way his mum called him a hipster but you know you know what else it was inspired by though Oh, yeah. Yeah, go for it, man. Courtney Taylor Taylor was um, sitting in his home and looking out the window and he just saw a car pull up to the traffic lights outside his house and he just said he saw like this sickeningly beautiful woman 
driving the car, just like kind of resting there with like root regrowth yeah, in her yeah. hair and like an awkward angle elbow on the thing. And just like, he was just like transfixed. Really cool tattoo. Yeah. Real cool tattoos and shit. And Courtney used to work as a mechanic before the dandies blew up. So he was just like watching her and praying that her car would break down so he could rush <laughs> out and be like, hey, I can fix the car. Look, I know that like there is a perfectly valid way to critique the origin of that song as like male centric bullshit woman as object which is pervasive in all of music but there is also a part of me that was younger and knows that feeling of like (laughs) seeing somebody very beautiful and thinking i wish i had a reason to interact with that human and then they go away and they're out of your life and if you're courtney taylor taylor you write this song it's great because the coda is because she was like in a particular kind of like german car that you know he was like oh my god i know about that car he asked a bunch of his buddies that drove similar cars one of them said that, like, maybe she was a pastry chef. And so he went to, like, every pastry place in the city. No and way. And ate too many pastries that week trying to find this girl, which uh, is very look, sweet. But also, it's that that's a bit too real, man. <laughs> yeah. I remember being a fuckwit. <laughs> God damn it, <laughs> Courtney. No. So you know why in the lyrics it has, I like you, I like you, I like you, I like you, I like <laughs> yeah. you, as, like, a part of it. Uh, apparently, like, the great thing about that story is that after that happened to him, he immediately picked up the guitar and wrote this in five minutes. Like right away, yeah. He said like, you know what? I'm just going to ape the Rolling Stones. It's mega Stonesy. Oh yeah, totally. There's a real like Jumpin' Jack Flash kind of vibe in this song for sure. Yeah, it's, it's mega Jumpin' Jack Flash shit. And it's so great that that story inspired the song. And then the opening lyrics are, you've got a great car. What's, What's wrong, wrong with, with it today? today? Yeah, I, I used to have one too. Like, like it's so good. But, and that's even funnier, that line, because in Australia, we talk about this being used in ads. Yeah. So Holden used this song to promote the Holden Astra range. Ha, ha. And they deliberately omitted that line. <laughs> got a great car. Yeah, it's a really great car. A really good car. And it's really fucking cheap. And there's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> you should buy this car. I think all the lyrics are kind of sweet in their dorky way, but just like, um, yeah, I really love your hairdo. Yeah, oh, I'm glad you like mine too. See, we're pretty cool. Like, we're looking pretty cool. Like, yeah, yeah, that's right. The great one is the um, like, so what do you do? Oh yeah, I wait tables too. No, I haven't heard your band because you guys are pretty new. But if you dig vegan food, we'll come on over to my work. I'll cook you something that you really love. Like, it's oh absolutely God. so perfect early 20s dating bullshit, man. They captured it so well. Yeah. They wrote that in fucking 1999, right? Presumably, if this record came out in 2000. That is verbatim a conversation you could have heard in fucking Erskineville yesterday. (laughs) Yeah. Like, when you say it out loud, like, in spoken word, makes me think, actually... In spoken word, it actually kind of works. Uh, but also, like, <laughs> say, saying it, it just it completely reads. That's that's amazing. Yeah. yeah, man. With the lyrics again, like, it makes sense. Like, I know Courtney Taylor Taylor. This comes across in many of his songs, I think, like the, the, the better ones. That, like, as a university student, he studied sociology and he really loves Kurt Vonnegut. Oh, my dude. That kind of irony and that kind of study of the way people interact comes through in his songwriting, I think. Yeah. The verse that gets me is the is the last one where he talks about, you know, like, who's who's that guy? Okay. <laughs> hanging around your pad. Yeah, who's that guy hanging around your place? Oh, he pays the rent? Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, so long as he doesn't mind sleeping on the couch when the I'm couch there. Couch when I'm there. Yeah. Like, fucking... <laughs> It's you know you know what the tone actually reminds me of and even the song and the sound of it and the vocals and everything yeah go it on. reminds me so much of Regurgitator 
totally. Oh, true. There's a snarkiness to it that is major Gurge vibes, man. Good ear. And even the the smoothness of the vocal production, yep. Gurge have used that. It almost sounds like Quan, right? Yeah. People should know that when I say it sounds like Regurgitator, I am paying a huge compliment. And I, I just think it's very interesting because I think the lyrical tone and the way that the band are presenting themselves are also very similar to what Regurgitator are doing. Obviously, it's written from the point of view of a man. It was written by a man about a woman he didn't know. But I think the video really does some good heavy lifting to make it a bit more like, I guess, like even kind of thing. The video was quite controversial mm. at the time because it featured both full frontal male nudity and topless female nudity. Yeah, right. The video is actually quite charming. It starts off like it's a karaoke track. It's like shot in like an actual karaoke bar in Portland. One of the reasons I why I think I know all the words to this song is probably because of that video. Because they're all on the screen. And it's sing- like a karaoke. Little bouncing ball, baby. Exactly. Give me that. <laughs> He sees like a woman like working on a car and then he looks, he's like looking down at her as it's doing those opening lyrics and then it f- cuts back to her and in his mind she's topless. And then like when it's the I hear you wait tables too, she looks at him and then he's like completely naked like with his cock out. And obviously that was not broadcast at all hours of the day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it's like them like kind of flirting back and forth in their shitty little tryst kind of thing while everybody else like just lip syncs along to the song in karaoke style. And it has a charm to it that I can see that matches the charm of the song that makes sense why it was as popular as it was. And obviously we we're in Australia, so like we knew it as a Holden ad song probably at some point, but it feels like a car ad. Like you could sell anything to this, right? You because really like yeah. could, because it's just so cool and fun and like comfortable the whole thing. But because like they've got that irony working there as well, like it never feels commercial or forced or anything. They really get to like have their cake and eat it too. That this song can be used for all these ads, but it, it doesn't really dilute the song. I think because the song is already a bit non-serious right it's not like bittersweet symphony which is like so sincere and really trying to make a statement you use that in an ad and it actually actively takes away you can put this wherever you want because you're never going to remove from the spirit of it because the spirit of it always had that enfolded within it they knew it was a hit they fucking must have man they knew because there's all these stories like in interviews where courtney brings it to each member of the band individually and they all describe lighting up and going like holy shit we're gonna make a hit this is this yeah. is it and he he describes being in like uh clubs and and places where like a bunch of famous people hang out and he and he slips the tape in for the dj to play just to get a sense of how it goes for the room and everyone goes nuts and he's like this is gonna be this is gonna be a thing i love the story that is told about when they recorded it. They had this big stone gymnasium in Portland because they wanted to really get a a sense of the room and a a sense of this old school kind of vibe. Um, So they did it up and they turned it into this insane psychedelic thing and everyone was just apparently like in there partying at the same time and playing strip poker and like drinking Mm. beer and like apparently for some reason they had a heater that shot jets of fire um, and they're all vaguely getting carbon monoxide poisoning or whatever. Um, (laughs) And I love... (laughs) I love... uh, after telling all of this, uh, I think it was the drummer who was relating this story. He said, "Like, yeah, the, the the space gave us this great vintage sound, but our sound engineer Greg Williams worked so hard that he ended up in pain." <laughs> 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 but you can hear it, right? Like, I think the texture of it is so good all the time. Like, whether it's the d- dirty, distorted guitars, kind of like driving through and really kind of matching what what uh, CTT is doing with his voice, or just mm. the opening where you have all the multi track guitars and there's an acoustic guitar in there as well it just like brings this texture across last junkie on earth is one of my favorite songs of all time but this is like such a brilliant song like it's absolutely deserving to have been the 
in this context, alternative rock radio hit it was, and in a broader context, the massively successful commercial rock radio song that it was as well. Like it absolutely is deserving of that, I think. I think it's just a delightful, fun, wry, funny, clever, but yet sincere and connective piece of pop rock music. It's remarkable. It's a song that you could easily retire the jersey of this song. Like effectively, none of us ever need to hear this song again. But we are electing to. There's just such a liveliness to it that every time you come back to it, you can just find something new and, and, and fun to love about it. I love uh, Zia in particular, like really holding it down in terms of having those organ drones, but also kind of having that low end kind of running simultaneously mm. uh, just shows like what a secret weapon of this band that she really, really is the drums which is actually a mix of brent and courtney like mm. they both kind of had different ideas of it and then they ended up kind of like splicing these two different drum tracks together and that's why you get that really percussive sound like in that opening bit and in the in the third verse which i also i also love because growing up i was very used to poorly done clean versions, right? Mm. We all know about very poorly done clean versions. We're talking about one next week. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah we are. No doubt. Andrew, you're talking about Firewater Burn, like yeah. remembering specifically <laughs> the do- the donkey hee-haws yeah. in burn, lieu of motherfucker. Burn. <laughs> you get the gold medal in donkey hee-haws, man. That was really good. Oh, thanks, man. Another gold for Australia. <laughs> Which means... Uh, you can now officially get a free Big Mac because Australia won a gold medal. Hey. You just have to go over to Andrew McDonald's place. I'll, I'll, I'll make you a burger, man. So in that verse, you hear that groan in the background and say, like, oh. When I heard that, I was like, they've definitely censored a word there. They weren't censoring anything. Yeah. It's just, it just a groan. When you said, Deej, about this being one that like you could hang the jersey up, but when it comes on, you're still stoked. Yeah. Actually true, because a number of years ago now, like I was... DJing at like a, a goth and alternative music night kind of thing. It was like half two or quarter to three or something. And I want to just have one, one more banger. And I put this on and like everybody was so fucking hype. People from like, who were like young people who were like at the time probably 18, 19 up to like 45 year olds. Kind of Everyone's like, oh, fucking A, this song. Like it just gets everybody grooving, man. Like it has that fucking appeal. You're absolutely right. I reckon this has got the gold medal in car repairs. Well, it, it never really got to compete in car repairs because yeah. the okay. event was cancelled when the light turned green. So, okay, gold medal in waiting tables. Yeah, well, I don't know whether he really has his heart into it. I, I, maybe a bronze in waiting but, tables. Yeah. Okay, okay. Br- well, what do you reckon? Bronze in waiting, silver in being horny, and gold in rooting. <laughs> well, does he actually root, or is he just uh, the gold medal in imagined rooting? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bravo, Hotly contested. Bravo. And the gold medal in uh, songs to sell things to. Yeah. yeah. Uh. Ad- advertising. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, we are over on the track and field, and we are talking about some long distance running. We are talking about some long distances here, man. We are going all around the fucking world right now. And our guide is none other than Mr. Paul Kelly at number nine. This is every fucking city. We argued on the channel train to Paris. The Van Rouge helped us make it sweet again. But by the time that we got down to Lyon, everything I said was wrong, and you cursed me in the rain. <laughs> <laughs> 
We split up for a while in Barcelona We met up six days later in Madrid I was hoping that the break would make things go a little better for us And for a little while it almost did Now I'm in a bar in Copenhagen And I'm trying hard to forget your name And I'm staring at the label on a bottle of cerveza And every fucking city feels the same Kelly making a return into the Hottest 100, coming in at number 9 in the 2000 countdown. That is the song Every Fucking City. It comes from an EP called Roll On Summer. This is an Olympic song. Yeah. <laughs> this is a just like the most appropriate title for an Olympic song. Well, he talks about a lot of countries that presumably were participating in the Olympics. Yep, it came out the month after the Olympics. There you go. It's just sick of them. Sick of all those cities, wandering around the Olympic Village and being like, these are all the fucking same. (laughs) So we have talked in bits and pieces about Paul Kelly in the past. Probably one of the more notable ones would have been his collaboration with Miss Christina New, the song Last Train. That was season one, baby. Yeah, like way, way back. Yeah, but you sang that song about. Oh yeah, I, I, I did. So. I did bring up uh, from St Kilda to King's Cross earlier this season because Klinger made a reference to that song. Yeah, so it counts. Yeah, totally, totally. In case it isn't exceptionally obvious from the things that I'm about to say, Paul Kelly is one of my heroes. I've seen him live nine times. I have listened to basically everything he's put out, which is no easy feat considering he is insanely prolific he put out a a covers mostly covers collection just the other week and has a new collection of songs coming uh later in the year and that's on top of a new like theater project that he worked on last year and a new studio album the year before that and a new studio album the year before that paul kelly is transcendent and intergenerational, and one of the most unique and compelling storytellers that this country has ever produced. And if you want a sense of that, then you can get it in this song. This isn't a signature song. This isn't one of Paul's most famous songs by any stretch of the imagination. To be perfectly honest, this could just be the goofy uncle pick, the same way that Ballad of the Skeletons by Allen Ginsberg kind of took off. Or If I Only Knew by Tom Jones, where it's just like, oh, there's this one weird old dude. Hey, you, whoa, hang on, hang on. Be very careful. All right keep going but you just yeah dude i fucking love tom jones shut your mouth <laughs> you know what you, well, know, you know uh, just that's it you know you bring up the great man i just have to make sure i know where it's going you know well consider this <laughs> gold for wales <laughs> gold for wales <laughs> gold for wales just for having gold for gold wales, for wales. You look at this top 10, you look at the top 10 where If I Only Knew came in, you look at the top 10 where Ballad of the Skeletons came in, one of these things is not like the others. And Paul Kelly is sandwiched in between two platinum-selling American rock bands, which will be followed by yet another platinum-selling American rock band. He has turned up to the wrong party. It's not something that really seems like it would appeal to the Triple J audience, and yet 
people fucking love this song. There's one very important reason, right? It has a swear. It has a swear. It has a swear. This is the thing that got the very first winner of the Hottest 100 over the line. This is what got no less than three songs with fuck in the title in the Hottest 100 of the year 2005. Fuck forever, bloody motherfucking asshole, and America fuck yeah. This would happen again in 2009, where it was won by Mumford and all of his sons. People love a hook where you can just let out a cheeky swear. Even though not all of those artists are Australian, it is a very Australian thing to just let out a good old fuck. But also, I'm not saying it's not a V for the swear. Paul Kelly, legend, obviously, everybody here loves him. But this song in particular, I think, the fact that like it does have that sweary hook really does help exemplify the spirit of the games. Yeah, no <laughs> doubt. Sometimes you need oh, to swear. What a wonderfully long-drawn bow, Andrew. <laughs> Thank you. I, I'm really glad you appreciated it because I was Golden about archery. It. Archery, Andrew. Golden Gold. archery. Golden archery. <laughs> <laughs> Paul has never done a studio version of this song and I hope that he never does this is a live take I believe it was a Melbourne show maybe like Northcote Social or something The Continental on the 25th of November 1999. Oh fucking course you know that fucking rain man over here. Good god It's on Wikipedia (laughs) I dug really deep for that Just the one website that we all (laughs) (laughs) Shh I think having the immediate reactions to the song, laughing to the punchlines, cheering along with the song's story, that is where this song thrives. If you were just listening to a studio version, I don't think it would have the same impact. He's holding court at the pub, right? It's another very unique showcase of Paul Kelly as a storyteller. It showcases his particular sense of humour, which I think is vastly underrated. He's written some devastating songs, some like fucked up, horribly like emotional songs that just make me bawl like a bitch. But he's also made me laugh my ass off quite a few times. Dude, David, you know what? That that exact thing with this song in particular, Paul his oeuvre in general, but this song in particular as well, and that humour thing, it, you know who it fucking reminds me of? Leonard Cohen? Leonard Cohen, man. Yes. It's exactly the same shit. You know right? they've like, toured together, yeah? I saw them tour together. Yeah, there you go. For me, when I hear it, it kind of goes back even further to to kind of like the old 60s folk stuff like Arlo Guthrie and even Bob Dylan to a certain extent. Yeah. Like the kind of shit that, again, didn't necessarily make it onto recorded versions or you know at a time when recorded and live was a little bit less distinguishable where a lot of stuff was just recorded off the floor or whatever you mentioned the humor and the punchlines which can only really happen in that kind of performative context you're absolutely right about that but like that was so present in in that kind of time in that kind of folk tradition so it really is just like a traditional kind of folk song but told about this classically modern australian kind of tale about traveling around Europe with someone you're in love with and then having a fight and then just ruining everything and poisoning every other beautiful place that you can go to. I know. Just to tell that story while while keeping it kind of lyrical, you know? This is not only the only standalone Paul Kelly song, this is not only the last time we will see Paul Kelly in the Hottest 100 for another 16 years, but it is also the only song in the history of the Hottest 100 to reference Ricky Martin. (laughs) Ricky Martin 
yet to respond. <laughs> this One is a distraction. You, you've been here multiple times, Richard. You were a judge on The Voice. You've spent a lot of time in Australia, my friend, and yet you have remained silent. What gives, man? Come on. Where's the Ricky track where he talks about dancing with ridiculously attractive <laughs> South American men and and hearing like dumb things <laughs> and being like, oh, this song. <laughs> <laughs> All the hottest like Colombian clubs are pumping dumb things oh, in 2020. God, Dude, yeah. I mean, look, if there was a, a like a South American remix of it, that would be fucking oh, sick. Yes, I'd listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fucking six, a bit generous. Which I know generosity is in the spirit of the game. Yeah, so yes, I, 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 but that's I, not I who I am. Your... I am no, technology. But, so no, but you're still applauding the spirit of the games themselves. We all. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Like again, like I mentioned, that this reminded me of Leonard Cohen in a lot of ways, and that isn't just because the first time I saw Paul Kelly live was opening for Leonard Cohen. That first verse, like if you, if you were to just recite it as things, just like saying like, we argue on the Channel train to Paris, the Vinroux help us make it sweet again, but by the time we got down to Lyon, everything I said was wrong, and you cursed me in the rain. We split up for a while in Barcelona. We met up six or later in Madrid. I was hoping that the break would make us th- go a little better for us, and for a while it almost did. On its own, that's fucking misery, man. This is lyrically a sad breakup song about something that's going poorly. But he does it in this jaunty, major key way. And the fact that it's a live recording, as a few of you have said, is so essential to it. You can feel the smirk in his mouth as he's saying these lyrics. I think we we laugh at the bitterness of it. It's a flash of recognition, yeah. partly because I think the whole like Australian backpacking around Europe is rooted so deeply in the cultural consciousness for us. You know what I mean? Yeah. That- yeah. Not that it's necessarily an autobiographical story, but the thing of him saying like the La Vida Loca yeah. bit, I can't believe I'm dancing to this crap, but I'm a chance here. Like he's like, yeah, yeah I'll dance to this, but like I might be in. And then just like it's the so resignation. Playful. And every fucking city sounds the same. Like, it doesn't fucking matter where you go. Those same tropes will exist. You'll be dancing to La Vida Loca in the year 2000, wherever you are. At the games or watching the games at home. <laughs> but but you've hit on it. Uh, something really, really wonderful, Andrew. And you're exactly right. Like, the lyrics, if you were to read them, you wouldn't think that they were funny. But it's Paul's character. It is the character of Paul Kelly and his voice that brings it to life, that makes it relatable, that makes it warm and something that you can live in performed by anyone else would it be as warm and relatable and and lovely and as australian paul's having fun with you and it's so good he just loves telling the story uh, there was a secret code that david played and it <laughs> i think i could hear this song maybe like once a week for the rest of my life and I would still just like every time it would come on I'd be like I love this song there's something just so sweet and sincere but darkly funny this feels exactly like Paul's hanging out with you and that's what you want from Paul Kelly yeah I have so much time for songs that are about experiencing places through people or vice versa I guess Mm. like you know we talked about Melbourne by the Whitlam's we talked about New York City, um, that cover that They Might Be Giants did oh, like yeah, a couple yeah, of years yeah, ago, yeah. whatever that was. I think that PJ Harvey song as well. Totally. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Songs that are about, ostensibly about place that are really just about people, they just feel so real because that's how we experience place. It's through the, like, the people that we're with or that we meet there or anything like that. Place is just about people. And this this song, the whole song is that. It's just there's so many places and it's just about this one person. It's such a beautiful 
evocation of that idea. It's just great. It's a beautiful, beautiful song. Someone might be like, oh, have you visited such and such? I'm like, yeah, I had a terrific time there. And I was like, oh, really? I fucking hated it. It's all based on the interactions you have with people and the mindset mm. you're in. How much Ricky Martin's there? <laughs> How much Ricky Martin is there? Is Tom Jones also playing on the stereo? Yeah. 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 Are you there when yeah. the city's kind of quiet? Or are you there when the city is hosting <laughs> the biggest sporting event of four years? <laughs> And not only that, but maybe the best iteration. Maybe the best one of that ever, yeah. Sometimes you do host the best Olympic Games. <laughs> Don't think Melbourne has that claim. <laughs> the 56 Games, more like the shitty shit games, Whoa! is what I say to Melbourneers. <laughs> Got Shots him! fired. <laughs> so the gold medal for chorus swears, the gold medal for backpacking, the gold medal for Martin sledging. <laughs> Mr. Mr. Paul Kelly. Mr. Paul Mr. Kelly. Next up is the pole vault. Our participants will be running with the pole and then vaulting themselves directly into the crowd because the shit has just fucking gone down and everyone is stage diving. With pole vaults, it's very dangerous but that's rock and roll for you. Best games ever. Best games ever. At number eight, this is the Foo Fighters with Generator. Motherfucking Foo Fighters, man. Making their return in the Triple J Hottest 100 at number eight with the song Generator from the album There Is Nothing Left to Lose. Let me just get it out of the way right here and right now. If the second you heard that riff, you didn't immediately stick your thumb into your mouth, push it to the side and go wow, 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 then you are a fucking poser, dude, and I'm calling the fucking rock police. And they are not <laughs> like the real police. They are just here to make sure that everyone is rocking. And if you are not rocking to a bit of fucking talk box, then, bruh, I just can't help you. This is arguably the most famous song that isn't by Bon Jovi, that features the very famous guitar technique of a talk box where you get a tube, you run it through a guitar pedal or the synthesizer, depending on where you plug it into, you stick it into the side of your mouth and you control the sound of it with your mouth. Folks, the talk box is the coolest fucking shit. It is lame as hell. It is so naff. It is so dorky. And yet the second this comes on, I'm just like this fucking will not stop rocking. It refuses to stop rocking. For me, I am just enthralled by what they were able to do on these first few records. They managed to create both the calm and the storm 
kind of having those nice melodic moments, the nice like hooky stuff, and then just the big riffs and the big hard hitting choruses. They they really know their way around dynamics. I love living in these verses, like going away from the the big talk box and the you know the huge guitars in the chorus and that sort of stuff. Just the really washed out guitar and how it's all picked out and like how Dave's vocals like a world famous screamer so much so he was literally in a band called Scream and yet he's he's all the way down the bottom here it suckers me in and I just I I fucking love it this is where the band thrives here they are a unique prospect and they are for better or worse, they are shaping the way that alternative rock will unfurl over the next, you know, 10, 20 years. I love coming back to this song. There are a bunch of more successful songs from this record, absolutely. But for me, there are very few that are just straight up better songs than Generator. This song is not on the Foo Fighters' greatest hits. No way. Surely it is. But this was an Australian release. But it was on the fucking record. Yeah, I know, no. But like, it, it was only a single release in Australia. So I think maybe it just didn't get big anywhere else. Right. And if you're talking about your greatest hits, that's usually pulling it from singles. If fucking Long Road to Ruin can be on there, that fucking absolute piece of fucking ass. It sounds like a fucking Eagles B-side. If that can be on there, but fucking Generator can't, man, I don't know what to tell you. Everlong is on there twice. Everlong is on there twice. Okay? Dude, I'm with you. It should be there because this to me is like a quintessential example of what the Foo Fighters did and I guess do Mm -hmm. so so well man like it's so interesting that Dave who when he wants to can truly belt out motherfucking vocals like a king right like he's just astonishingly good he shows such restraint here and it creates this tension that is so fascinating because true man like I think the first maybe one or two times that the it's the song position so to speak for the chorus it's just an instrumental performance of the riff of the chorus not repeated just they just do it one or two times and then when you know the song you're waiting for that chorus so well and then when the chorus does come in it feels like such a sing-along moment and you would typically expect him to be doing like the like tearing up the vocal cords i'm the generator and he Mm. doesn't give you that and the tension that creates is so bewitching, man. Like this is one of my favorite Foo Fighter songs. I think this is, this is a terrific piece of rock music. Easily top five for me. Fair fucking yeah. I'd be. I'd agree, man. Yeah. I think this is kind of the spiritual successor to Everlong in a lot of ways because it possesses that tenderness and just something about the emotional pull, like especially something about the last chord change that happens in that main melody and the last couple of notes that come in there. I don't know what it is, but there's just some way that that makes me feel it's so vulnerable and tender it really is about that tension between that huge stadium rock energy and that vulnerability and the fact that they managed to navigate both of them so well is really like what drives the whole song and the musical kind of thing that's going on there in terms of like something trying to get loose and then being pulled back i think matches what the song is about as well just like mirroring the emotional situation of wrestling with your feelings inside this relationship Because it really does describe this dysfunctional kind of thing where the protagonist is supporting someone uh, through their self-destructive tendencies. 
So you're dealing with things like pain and love and frustration and so and trying to keep everything under control and find your way through it. So these violent, volatile emotions are kind of, they keep coming up, but you keep coming to bring them down because you need to know the right way to try and deal with it. It's wrestling with that inside your head. And and even like, as you say, like the talk box, like it is so naff, but yeah. if you're going to give it credit, like you're writing such a personal song and for the lick to be such a central part of it, there's something almost beautiful and poetic about putting a human voice into it, about Dave saying like, no, 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 I want some of myself in there. It's a total reminder that is big and is accomplished in mainstream rock stadium songwriting. The Foo Fighters, when they want to, can be just like a really sweet, tender band that that really tug at you emotionally. Honestly, I'm a bit shocked. So coming to this, I'm like, huh, H, that's very high for this middle of the road Foo Fighters song. Um oh. But you okay. guys all love it. And and I, I understand why you love it. I've just never seen anything interesting in it, really. Um, it's not that I think it's a bad song. I don't get the tension. I get that there's no release, but I I don't find attention to enjoy in it. So I just I just feel like it never lands. I think the entire song is built around tension. So if you're not feeling it, then yeah. it, you're really, you're missing it. Like, yeah. I think it's a decent song. And, you know, I think the, the talk box experimentation is good whatever <laughs> you know like it's it's obviously like it's a bit of a novelty i think it they blended into the song pretty well the biggest thing for me is just like eight is super high for me for this song like if this was like in the bottom half of the countdown i'd be like yeah cool nice mm. um but instead i'm just like okay cool i guess everyone was super into it like straight away i've said before about a few bands is that i love when they want to do something a little bit different but they can't help but make it be hooky and poppy. Not that necessarily Dave was going for something truly confronting or experimental, but like even the talk box bit is a fucking hook. He's like, oh, I accidentally made a bit that everybody is going to sing along to for the next 25 fucking years. I think that's really <laughs> charming to me. I love that, yeah. David, as you were saying about uh, the like the rock police and versus the actual cops, um, I was going to say, One's a group of white guys who arbitrarily enforce laws and ideas from decades-old notions of what culture should be. And the other's the rock police. Bloody got him. Political over here. Do we want to award any uh, any medals? Golden talk box. Definitely golden talk box. Also, uh, golden appearance at uh, Chapel Off Chapel, which is where the music video was filmed in Melbourne's... Oh, yeah. Cold life at the chapel, baby. Yeah, man. Surely the gold in foo fighting. Probably. (laughs) Those foos aren't going to fight themselves, man. (laughs) Next up, we are back to the track and field. Instead of a normal race, we're just going to run around various parts of the city for no apparent reason. And it's going to be kind of confusing, but it'll be animated really well. So you'll just kind of be impressed by it as a kid. And then you'll see everyone with their shirts off and you'll just be like, oh, yeah, they're rocking out. That's fun. That's cool. And it'll be all very confusing, but at the end, it'll just be like, well, that was definitely a formative experience that I'm not going to be able to explain on a podcast 20 years later. (laughs) At number seven, this is the Red Hot Chili Peppers with Californication. Sweet. 
Chili Peppers coming in at number 7 in the 2000 Hottest 100. That is the title track to their comeback album, Californication. We said it in 1999, we said it again in 2019, and I'm going to say it again in 2020. Frusciante is back! Yeah. Adam, let him know. Quite literally, this song could not have existed without John Frusciante. If it wasn't immediately apparent listening to the song that he was the hero of the song, just in how he plays the instrument that he's in charge of, the guitar. This apparently was a song that the Red Hot Chili Peppers found very, very hard to write. Kiedis came up with the poetry for the song, the lyrics, kind of on its own, and he, and he really was very, very proud of it. And they had just the hardest time figuring out how the song should sound musically, how it all should come together. And it was just John Frusciante himself. He just walked into the studio one day as they were struggling and just said, like, I figured it out. And then they had it. And they created a song here that, and I'm not the biggest Red Hot Chili Peppers fan. I listened to them quite a lot growing up. And I certainly feel like I'm across their major kind of milestones and a lot of their discography, at least the the more mainstream kind of stuff when they were at the at the height of their popularity. But to me, this song is synonymous with the Red Hot Chili Peppers. This is a song that is so aligned to what the band is trying to do, what they stand for, and the things they are trying to say musically, emotionally, lyrically, all of it that any statement about Californication, the song, could be a statement about Red Hot Chili Peppers. And I think that is a rare and beautiful thing to find when a band managed to hit that. Apparently, just musically, uh, the song was inspired by The Cure, you might be um, interested to find out, particularly by the song Carnage Visors. Which is a 20-minute soundtrack piece. It was a film by um, Simon Gallup's brother, what the song is trying to do is kind of it's it's all there really nicely tied up in the title of the song itself using california identified as this epicenter to spread kind of like western celebrity culture and consumerist culture kind of across the world you know the world's being california catered uh, but also you know the, the the play on that in in using the word fornication in there and that word play speaking about how there's an over-sexualization and sleaze to to kind of all that. And so what you have in the lyrics are these smash cuts of all these different pop culture references. And again, like it it has a bit of that kind of, um, again, 60s beatnik kind of thing in, in, in the way that it kind of just progresses over these vast kind of cultural landscapes. In some ways, what the song is trying to say is very, very similar to other songs that we've covered, such as Stacked Actors and Celebrity Skin. In fact, Celebrity Skin even gets an explicit nod uh, inside the lyrics itself. The joke is that the Red Hot Chili Peppers only write songs about California. But like to to have this kind of like grand sweeping statement about what California actually is in relation to the rest of the world and to, and to turn it metaphorically is well handled here. It just carries this world-weary, tired, almost defeated, retired kind of tone behind it, which you can hear with those kind of noodling lines from the guitar and the bass, which I think could only have been done by the Red Hot Chili Peppers in that kind of way. It, 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 the, the personality of, those, of the players comes through so well here. Anthony Kiedis is doing the vocal style that we've come to know 
both successfully and unsuccessfully um, <laughs> in, in various different Chili Pepper songs, that kind of like almost rap song kind of deal, that that, that kind of uh, funk-inspired vocal. It's better here though, right? Like I feel like the last couple of songs, Anthony has been the worst performing member of Red Hot Chili Peppers. But but here, yeah, you kind of get it. Like it's like, oh right, this is where it's supposed to be. This is the kind of song that's supposed to serve that kind of vocal and whatever. When I looked at this song and I took it all apart, I was impressed at each individual part that I took apart. But the question that you have to have is: Is this a machine as greatly crafted as it is that you have any kind of use for, or is it just kind of like a vintage car, something that sure it's well made, but I don't give a shit. The song is, I think, is definitely really well written it is surprisingly lush and complex for the chili peppers and mm. again for a for a title that's a pun about like rooting in la yeah um, I, I i think i pay i pay the concept of the song more than you do I, I i definitely think it's always okay to write a song about the dark underbelly of hollywood in la like it's a it's a rife but I think it's more for- than that like I, I think they really are identifying the spread of western culture across the world and they're just they're just using LA as a source point for that but they're talking right. about how it's how it's creating you know obsessions with entirely the wrong things because it's it's kind of broadcasting this culture through Hollywood and and through celebrity culture and and through all those kinds of things like yeah, I'd pay that. The Californication is happening to the world. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. I see what you mean now. The Chili Peppers yeah. for all their love of California are disillusioned by it. It's just so them. This is the song that they were destined to make. Everything has been leading up to them making this, I think. I certainly think it's one of their, by far, their most accomplished song. I think I'm just beyond the point of that joke or line, right? Like, the society has excelled beyond the need for the existence of Chili Peppers. Like, yeah. It's all right now. The song's very good, but it's just, I, I think we're just kind of done. How do you think they feel, man? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Don't make me feel bad. <laughs> They've performed this song over 500 times. I think they've been well compensated for it. <laughs> oh, no doubt. I definitely do sympathize with the idea of retiring this song's jersey, but like I did get something out of coming back to this song. Like you said, this is this is for Shantae's back, baby. This is the this is the comeback era. You know, this is his first album back since Blood Sugar, which was obviously such a huge, huge moment in the trajectory of the band. Other side comes out around this time, road tripping comes around around this time. Like it's just this phenomenal run of singles that, you know, went on to define the band for not only this era, but their entire career. And of all the singles to come out of that time, this ranks up there as one of the strongest for me. A lot of it has to do with that interplay between Frusciante and Flea. That riff is so distinctive. Flea's bass playing is exceptional where he's able to lay down that low end but also kind of treat it like a second guitar part and have those melodic lines kind of complementing the whole thing. You've got that Farfisa, like, 60s-style organ. It it adds kind of more of a psychedelic uh, 60s kind of vibe to it, which is kind of cool. The crack of the snare and the ghost notes that Chad Smith will play... In terms of being a showcase for these guys from an instrumental standpoint, like I, I think this is near faultless. I think there is merit in coming back to this song and 
you know, seeing what this band was able to create within this formation. No, no doubt about that, man. It's definitely the best lineup for a raising kind of thing. But like, I just, I'm completely done with the Chili Peppers. There's not a time where I ever think, man, I want to hear the Chili Peppers again. You know what? You know what I think it could be as well. There's something about perfect songs, quote unquote, that can kind of be a little bit boring. Your brain's not searching for anything to kind of fix in it. So I think if Californication has a fault that runs through the whole thing, is that it's like too well realized as a Chili Peppers song <laughs> that you can kind of dismiss it. Like, especially if you're not that into the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yeah, that's fair. I feel like I definitely, like, you know, coming back and listening to it the other day, I was like, first minute, I was like, man, this is really good. Like, I love, like you said, the the, the way the bass and the vocals kind of interplay. I think Anthony is actually in really good form here and his vocals suit what the band is doing and also the content of the song. The guitar, obviously amazing. But like halfway through the song, I was like, ah, oh, it's still going and I <laughs> don't care, which... <laughs> Even though it's good, I don't care. And I was like, I'm not sure what to take from that, but probably not good. So I don't know. Dude, maybe, yeah. maybe it is just like just done with chili peppers, you know? But it, it could be that. Like it could be that. Like maybe it has just reached a point of oversaturation and, and and like it presents itself so well that after all this time there's nothing left to discover. And there's only so far you get halfway through the song um, when it comes to kind of revisiting us. Because uh, there is something holding me back from saying that I like it and it's good. And I don't <laughs> and I don't know exactly what that is. Like I keep pointing towards the craftsmanship and everything, but I keep trying to not want to involve myself for some reason. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. But I think there couldn't possibly have been a top 10 for the hottest 100 in this year without this song. Definitely not. That's yeah. unfathomable. No, yeah. This yes. is allowed to be here. Yes. That, it, has, it has to be. Yeah. yeah. It has yes. to be. Uh, gold medals in what then, you reckon? Mm. Ooh. Rhyming words with Californication. <laughs> oh, yep. I reckon this yep. is the relay, right? This is the relay race because like, totally. the, the team is back together again and everyone's doing their part yep. and then they win the relay race. The baton passing and everything. And maybe the baton is a needle. Who could say? (laughs) (laughs) Shut it down. Shut it down. Ready the trumpets. Ready the horses. Ready the vinyl decks. Ready the parrots that talk. Folks, they're here. They're finally fucking here. It's taken us years and years and years, but they're finally here at number six. This is the Avalanches with Frontier Psychiatrists. Mr. Kirk, Dexter's in school. I'm afraid he's not, Miss Fishmore. Dexter's trilogy problem is way out of hand. The Baltimore County School Board have decided to expel Dexter from the entire public school system. Well, Mr. Kirk, I'm an offended you to learn Dexter's two and three, but surely expulsion is not the answer. I'm afraid expulsion is the only answer. It's the opinion of the entire staff that Dexter is criminally insane. Same, same, same. That boy needs therapy. Psychosomatic. That boy needs therapy. Purely psychosomatic. That boy needs therapy. Lying down on the couch. What does that mean? You're a nut. 
You're crazy in the coconut. What does that mean? That boy needs therapy. I'm gonna kill you. That boy needs therapy. Granny Gazoo, let's have a two. How about I count three? That 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 boy, boy needs therapy. <laughs> he was white as a sheep. And he also made false teeth. The Avalanches making their debut in the hottest 100 of the year 2000. That is Frontier Psychiatrist. It comes from the game-changing, life-altering, next-level, lawsuit-friendly debut (laughs) album, Since I Left You. Nathan, Mm. you are a boy that needs a fuckload of therapy. <laughs> oh. But sometimes you're funny when you talk. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, that's, that's true. Oh boy. You know, obviously in in preparing to talk about this song and now being in the moment, like just with the kind of weight of expectations on me, I feel like I really understand world-class athletes. You know, yeah. and the pressures mm. that are on them. I Nathan, feel like Nathan, Nathan, <laughs> That's right. The crowd Nathan. are chanting for me. You know, I've been training for this all my life, but, um, you know, that doesn't make it any easier. I feel like (laughs) in many ways I am Usain Bolt right now. Like Mm. my experience is his experience. Um, Oh, you're going to knock it out of the park if you're Usain Bolt. Well, I hope so. Usain Bolt was a runner, Adam. He's what? Usain Bolt was a runner. He didn't knock anything out of any park. All right. Are you thinking of a different Usain Bolt? (laughs) It's all right. Sorry. Sorry, Nathan. I thought that was just bizarre. <laughs> All right. Fire the starting gun. Bam. Uh, avalanches. Uh, so a few guys uh, sort of who uh, were a, a noise punk band and gave that in and became DJs. Hip-hop DJs, real uh, kind of crate digging, crawling through record stores, finding stuff, putting bits and pieces together, a lot of sampling, and kind of made a little DJ group together. They messed around with a lot of names before they landed on Avalanches. I think it was one of those things that we've talked about before where the band is like, let's pick a, ba- a different name every gig and whatever one we get signed on or whatever one works, that's the name. We've definitely talked about other bands that have done the same thing. Then they put out this album, Since I Left You, which is just like huge. And and like you said, Teach, absolute game changer. Like there, were, there wasn't anything like this. There's like other sample works happen. You know, obviously we talked about Fatboy Slim a lot. We talked about the Chemical Brothers. We talked about DJ Shadow a few years ago. But this this album does something completely different. And this song in particular is very special. I think interestingly, early versions of it, they said that um, it was just too kind of big and heavy. That like, you know, you got that big beat and those horns. And they said it was like too much like a Dr. Dre sample. And they, they were like, oh, true. "We can't, we can't do that. That's not who we are." And and mm. they kind of went looking for other other ways to sort of realize what that song was. And eventually, they got to comedy records, and it kind of was this weird light bulb moment for them. They found this um, Canadian comedy duo, Wayne and Schuster, and and they had a sketch called Frontier Psychiatrist about a cowboy who was going mad and abusing his horse and. And the psychiatrist said oh that he needed therapy. And from that, they also then jumped off to other things, including the John Waters film Polyester, which is about Dexter's truancy problem. It's way out of hand. 
It's so out of hand. That's where the opening thing comes from. But there's something about, I think, going to comedy and going to like camp, like with the John Waters stuff, that just completely changes the intensity of the song because those voices and those those kind of ideas are so so much bigger and 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 so performative compared to like you know a, a much more realistic naturalistic sample so all of a sudden like these big beats with these huge spaghetti western strings have all these really weird throwaway things about this like crazy cowboy and this guy skipping school and it just turns it into something weird and different and beautiful and so much of the song isn't even like beat driven there's definite sections where you're like man this beat is incredible and then they'll stop to play like a children's like education sample of someone telling a a story about a bird and Mm. then they'll scratch that bird up like it's nobody's business so much it's it's so much a vehicle for that scratching i think so much of the time though right like there's a lot of the it's just play and and it's really like showcasing that craft I read a really good essay by uh, Anwen Crawford, who's one of my favorite music journalists, along with uh, David James Young, who's here on the pod. Um, <laughs> Who? But she, she wrote about um, the avalanches in The Monthly, and she talked about how at this point in time, we're about a year away from the first iPod. We're also like, as we've discussed quite a lot so far, Napster is happening, and all of a sudden the internet is is a place where people can share music. And the amount of people amount of music that people have access to has just exploded exponentially like you've gone from maybe having a few dozen albums or whatever to absolutely being able to access any song anywhere um and there's a nice bit here where where um Anwen writes, at first, the sheer amount of available music feels giddying, but it quickly becomes a strain. There simply isn't enough time, not even in one's lifetime, to listen to any more than a fraction of it. And so the anxiety of choice returns. An ambient awareness of all the millions of songs you'll never hear turns out to be petrifying. Um, and, And she sort of posits that the Avalanches and this album is a kind of joyous response to that fear where they've kind of done the work and they've done all this meticulous crate drinking, picking out samples that, you know, you would never even think of and putting them into something so kind of boyish and, and optimistic that it really kind of captures the, the idea of what could be with music. Cause that's so, that's so interesting to me, man, because like I was seriously, when I was listening to it kind of going like, what is, the cultural touchstone for this kind of sampling. You know what I mean? Like, Mm. yeah. And the closest thing I could come to is kind of like the idea of flicking through channels on a, on a TV, which I still think is a a good kind of image for the song. Cause it really, yeah, yeah, definitely. The way these incredibly disparate things kind of get mashed up. It's like, yeah, it's 3am. You can't sleep. You have a fever and you're just mindlessly (laughs) flicking through TV and, and seeing the random patterns of of visuals and audios that kind of come up. But like, you're, you're so right. I pay that take so well that it's, it's almost like reaching into the future a little bit because like we listen to it now and this is what I think has given the the record its longevity because it's aged really well because now this is how much our attention span is, right? We are so used to flicking between one thing or another. After this album, you know, mashups have, have happened. Mm. Um, and again, like we're used to oh, just getting little, yeah, little bits of songs here and there and whatever and like a lot more electronic internet-based music that kind of plays with the, you know, these kind of short bursts and stuff like that. But in many ways, like it's just so ahead of the curve, right? There's no other way to describe it. It it looked ahead 
in trends of culture and in music uh, more specifically. And it just kind of like, it it went there. I, I don't want to um, discredit any of the accomplishments that they, that they had because I do think they are like, I like since I left you, the record this is pulled from, it's one of my absolute favorite fucking records of all time. It's sickeningly beautiful. I can listen to it when I'm in any mood, if I'm depressed or wistful or happy or relaxed, it's one that like when I'm in the park walking my dogs, if I bring a speaker, it's one that I can reliably put on and it will just suit no matter the mood and people will chill with it because it all rules. And this is by far the most obvious single from the record. It wasn't actually the first single. The first single was Electricity. Really? Yeah, right? I guess because I've like been interested in like the this term of plunderphonics, which is a genre of like taking multiple audio recordings to, to turn to a new composition kind of thing, sound collage shit, right? Like so, this is certainly mm. a game changer for that idea kind of thing. But like this exists as part of a lineage going back to at least the mid '80s. Like obviously, like beat more driven and more pop accessible with this song is something that Avalanches did that was quite unique. But like back in 1985 was when the John Oswald Plunderphonics EP was originally released. Like this, these kind right. of things. And like, yeah. And, uh, and the KLF did a huge amount of similar stuff in the late eighties. Was it as busy? Like, was there, were there as many samples at play? John Oswald stuff. Yeah. And also okay. negative land stuff. Yeah. I do think that like that first Avalanches record is a masterpiece and, does stand alone, particularly in fucking Australian music, mm, but yeah. also like yeah. just in terms yeah. of plunderphonics it, and like crate digging bullshit, which is how they got a lot of stuff. They, they were going to like Vinnie's and like Red Cross secondhand stores. And, you know, like when you go into those stores and you can buy like 10 LPs for $5 and they, <laughs> they were doing that just with random records and finding little bits, which is why the record was finished in like 99 and wasn't released until 2000 and 2001 internationally because clearing the samples was so bamboozling. And the estimate yeah. was 3,500 vinyl samples used across yeah. the album. Jesus. If you haven't actually checked out that since I left your record, as soon as this episode's done, you have to queue it up. It is a masterpiece. Absolutely. You'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who didn't call it one of the best Australian albums ever made, right? Dude, like, yeah, and I'm like, and if you're into sampled or, or electronica music at all, you would call it one of the best records ever made. Basically. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but I also think Pitchfork, when they were doing a wrap up of the decade, certainly should have been high if it wasn't. It, it was very high, but that's the thing. Like, it's important to not only know that this is one of the best Australian albums by the opinion of Australians, which is like, which is usually a whole thing um, yeah. that doesn't necessarily meet international kind of opinion but in this case it absolutely does as well like this is one yeah. of the most well-known and critically acclaimed australian albums internationally but frontier psychiatrist is by far and away the track on the album that is the most single ready it has by far the most boisterous and hmm. the most overtly sampled shit like it's the one that you can tell is the one that's like composed of samples so clearly hmm. like and it comes quite late in the LP's run. There's only a couple more tracks. They tease you throughout the entire record of these like things that they can do and the fun that they can have and the whole record rules. But then it gets to this track at the end and it's just like, here you go. Here's the fucking boisterous, <laughs> fun, ridiculous one. Let's have it's a party. It's the free swim after all the, it's the, the free races swim have after been run. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think this song is so suitable to the Triple J and the Hottest 100 that... 
for me, it's hard for me not to think of it as being always present here and that it warped time around it to curate what the hottest 100 would be before it and after it. Like <laughs> this is this is like the Triple J singularity. Nothing captures the the spirit of Triple J more than this song, I think. This this, this fun, weird, fringe kind of track. We've heard like songs in this kind of nature or with this kind of attitude or with this kind of feeling, this playfulness um, before many, many times. And we've, we've touched on it then saying like, oh, this reminds me of the avalanches because I think what we're really doing there is just hitting on that. Like this, this is it. This is the hottest 100 in a song. I think this is just a perfect example to, to serve up of what triple J was. And I love just how much this song always for me lives in the imagination because you're dealing with these these samples that are clearly taken from these disparate places but have such strong aesthetics behind it like all the western stuff you you hear the horses whinnying and you and that image jumps into your mind and you, or you hear that my way of life sample by Enoch Light that the, that really soaring choral thing that kind of gets repeated there all the horns and you images just continually coming to mind like my brain went insane when I was a kid and I first heard this and I heard that bird being scratched up, there was an explosion of feathers in my head all of a sudden. Like, and I just love how evocative. <laughs> well, I mean, like, that bird's not okay. <laughs> oh, no. But a young and, kakapo out there heard that and was just like, you know what? I will pursue my rap career. And, and yes. did he. Just the vast amount of imaginative ground that this song covers. It's just huge. Yeah, I remember hearing this song as a kid and hearing it with like my parents, whatever that. And I think my old man in particular loving the shit out of this so hard. And then I remember him specifically going to the uh, record store to get the album that it was from. And the record store clerk explaining, like, oh, it's not out yet because they haven't got sample clearance rights. The single's out and you can buy the single. but you can't get the album yet. Like we're all waiting for it, dude. Like we, I want it as bad as you do. And then him coming home and being like, they can't release it yet. I don't know. Like and being a kid and not, and not knowing the fucking logistics of sample clearance. as that just didn't make any sense to me at all. I'm like, but it's, it's done. Why isn't it out? But like, yeah, like this is both a huge nostalgia trigger for me and just a astonishingly bombastically perfect piece of weirdo electro pop. Every part of it is fun. Fuck your dad is cool. So cool. Get some good fucking taste, man. Like, if if Mick Jagger didn't sing on it, my dad doesn't give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> hey, my, 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 are my you saying your dad is Mick Jagger? <laughs> yes. <laughs> we're all we were all at a very impressionable age when we saw this video and we heard this music for the first time. Hearing something so unique. And something so out there and something so outside of the box and so adventurous and creative and ambitious, like, it really shapes you. Any quote-unquote weird music that all of us like, obviously some to more extents than others, we can stem all of that to, like, hearing this as kids. I see this as like more influential than we we might even be able to fully comprehend. And of course, they would go on to have such a prolific career. (laughs) (laughs) 
they they didn't have any kind of huge anticipation following them because they were just <laughs> constantly on the up and up. For those who don't know, David is being facetious. So I guess, yeah. <laughs> because it was this and then 16 years, right? Yeah. Yeah. Correct. Wow. <laughs> I mean, look, I pay it, you know. I pay taking the time to, like, make something you like. I pay not having a successful record and diving straight into the the kind of standard cycle of like a new album every two, three years and constant touring. Like mm-hmm. if that doesn't work yeah. for you, you shouldn't do it. And so as much as like, if there were five avalanches records, that would be very cool. Yeah. Um, I absolutely pay them kind of building the music career that worked for them. If avalanches never did anything else ever again, and I'm glad they are doing things continually, particularly now I'm stoked, but if they never did, that would still be considered one of the greatest acts in Australian music because that Since I Left You record is like, what is it, 60 minutes long and there's not a minute that isn't perfect. Like it manages to blend headiness that rewards nerds who want to find sample origins, talking on forums, being like, where do you think this is from? Where do you think this is from? And I was like, oh my God, I actually know the John Waters film that the intro is from. And it's like this huge revelation. It manages to reward that kind of incredibly nerdy appreciation and consumption, but also just being like, in its way, pretty much just a fucking disco record that yeah. like <laughs> that bangs, right? Like I said, there is something to be said about hearing something so unreal to to the ear where you're just like, how are they able to do all of that? You can't say that about any other song in this top 10. Uh, gold medals for the avalanches. What are we calling? Gold to Nathan. Oh, yes. I'm, 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 I, yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and say that. We'll say that straight out. I um, am like Usain Bolt. <laughs> I told um, you, man. I told you. Yeah. In so many ways. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to find a way that you are unlike Usain Bolt. <laughs> yeah. I can't I'm trying think to of think anyone. I'm just drawing I, blanks. Nothing. Good nothing. Yeah. Gold medal for crate digging. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Gold medal for obsessive compulsive insanity of mixing. <laughs> yeah. But they um but they also won't be competing for mm. the next three Olympics. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And you, um, and you, oh, and you, you know what? Gold for Australia. <laughs> uh, it's absolute <laughs> gold for Australia. Gold for Australia. And silver at bird scratch. The gold being won by New Zealand and uh, a competitor yes. by the name of Bluster Murphy. Have you heard of this guy? Real um, Olympics debutante. Yeah. Folks, that brings us to the end of part one of our Olympic top 10 ceremony where we go through the absolute top tier of the Triple J Hottest 100 of the year 2000. We will be back next week to wrap this thing up and share our extended thoughts on the top five songs of the year. Bring the games to a close, a historic close. The the closing ceremony, if you will, is happening next week and we would love to see you there. In the meantime, on behalf of Mr. Adam Buncher, uh, gold. Just gold, you know? <laughs> gold! Andrew McDonald. Oh, the gold too, actually. Yeah, there you go. I have a cheeky gold. Yeah, a bit of a cheeky gold is a treat. Cheers, as. And Nathan Harrison. I'm going to give my medal to charity. They don't want it. <laughs> <laughs>
What a nerd. What are they going to do with that, dude? <laughs> Melt it down and uh, sell it. Melt it down and drink it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to gain the vigor of the Olympic spirit. <laughs> Love it. My name is David James Young. Everything at the Sydney 2000 Olympics is good for you. Those references didn't feel tacked on at all. <laughs> <laughs>